Taylor McPherson filling in for Gormley on this Monday morning. Hope your week is off to a fantastic start. John is back in the big chair with you on Tuesday. Just a little brief stint in the hosting chair for me, myself, and I. All right, this next guest that we're going to bring on is talking about social media, and particularly social media in wartime. It has been fascinating watching some of these conflicts play out before our eyes in real time, particularly on Twitter. Twitter seems to be kind of ground zero, so to speak, for wartime coverage and for real-time wartime information right from the ground. For those of you with long memories, you can think all the way back to the first Gulf War in 1991, which was kind of the first televised war. Right, It was the first war where you had CNN, you had AP, you had people like right on the ground with the troops, the cameras were right there, and you were getting stuff right from the ground in fairly real time. But now everybody has a camera, everybody has a video camera on them that they carry all the time, and anybody can post to social media from anywhere in the world. But of course, it's a double-edged sword. Because while we get really detailed, really clear, really immediate information, that can also very easily be harnessed or weaponized with false information to sway public opinion or to just muddy the waters and get us further away from the truth. Joining us now is Juliana Kirschner. She is Kirschner, excuse me. She is a lecturer at the Annenberg School for Communication at Journal and Journalism at the University of Southern California. Uh, good morning. Thank you so much for joining the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. All right. During a war, like we saw in Ukraine and like we're seeing right now in Israel, does social media help us cut through the fog of war, or does it just serve to muddy the waters? I'd say it's a mix of both. Um, there's, of course, some valuable information that you can get on social media, as you so well illustrated earlier in um, your introduction to this segment, uh, that there there are times when we can get information that we otherwise just simply could not have received because people who are on the ground with their cell phones, with all of their internet-connected devices, are able to capture moments in time um, very quickly and then immediately upload it into um, spaces like Twitter and um, Facebook and, and Instagram and, of course, now TikTok, um, to name a few. But part of the problem there is, you know, these platforms really do thrive on having, you know, eyes, essentially, on this content. And so oftentimes, with the algorithm will sort is things that just will get more viewership or really more engagement. And so oftentimes some of that really good content, things that we need to know, human you know stories, like things that are happening to people on the ground become clouded by all of these, like, you know, false news, um, you know, misinformation, things that just are trying to steer eyes away from the good things, you know, the things that we need to know and towards things that will just encourage engagement. It's really interesting trying to sort that out because that ultimately becomes sort of the job of the user, doesn't it? You see these posts flying at you at a million miles an hour and you kind of have to make the call. Is this, is this something legitimate or is this something I should just scroll past and ignore? That, that becomes really kind of taxing on the user after a while, doesn't it? It does, yes. I mean, and, and the user really is caught in the middle of this whole thing that you have, you know, these conflicting interests. You know, the platform wants to keep people on, you know, in online in that space. 
space um, so that they can, you know, of course, share their ads and, you know, promote all of the things that they want to promote. But then you also have, of course, these other conflicting interests of people who are are capitalizing on that um, platform focus of just really trying to get folks to to see their fallacious content or things that maybe aren't really adding anything of value, but are just inciting hate or or violence even. Um, And so the user is really caught in the middle. It's very challenging to just to, to kind of sift through and see, like, is this real or is this not? And oftentimes users are misled. And I mean, they're the ones who are really suffering the brunt of this issue because, you know, all they want is the information and all they want is to be able to make their own decisions about what that information, um, you know, is saying. But they have to really dig through kind of very muddy environment in order to find what is of value to them um, and to the situation at hand as well. And so the user is very much, you know, I would say caught in the in the middle of this this sort of um, back and forth between various forces on social media. Juliana Kirshner is with us, lecturer at the Annenberg School of Communication and Journalism at the University of Southern California. All right, let's talk about some tips that the user can use to really sort through the barrage of information that we're getting, especially when it comes to wartime coverage. Like, let's say you see a video or a post on social media. It's not from a news source or a government source, and it's making a pretty big claim. Are there some red flags you'd look for or some techniques that you go to when it comes to trying to verify something? Absolutely. Um, so the first thing is, you know, kind of the old adage, if it looks too good to be true, it probably isn't. Um, so meaning that, you know, if, it, if there's something about it that just seems so totally contrary to what um, you accept to be true about the world, this is essentially what, um, you know, one a scholar in the communication field, Walt Fisher, talked about his entire career is that it just, if it doesn't add up, if there's something about it that doesn't seem like it could be true in reality, then, you know, the questioning should lead, you know, to perhaps either dismissal of the content or seeking out other sources that could potentially corroborate it. So the only good thing about having content coming up so quickly is that you can have multiple accounts of the same event potentially happening simultaneously. So the, the, the good thing about this is if you see a video, you can then seek out, you know, of course, this is more work on the user, but then seek out, you know, more content about and surrounding that event to see if the same kind of information is being shared or not. Um, and so that's that's kind of, you know, a good and a bad thing about things being uploaded so quickly is that there's additional sources of information about that. Um, and the other thing to look for as well is, you know, who who is posting this? Is this a, a user that you have taken seriously in the past? Is it someone who, or, or a purveyor of content that you have historically have trusted? Um, then I, I feel like that credibility, you know, over time has really built up, you know, a, a reliability in terms of like traditional news sources obviously would be more reliable. But if it's a user that has been on the ground in several different events and can you can confirm that yes, their past content has been correct and has been corroborated by the news or has been really, you know, seen as credible, then they will be more likely to be taken seriously than say just a random user that say has zero followers, no engagement on any of their previous content and, and one that just doesn't necessarily, you know, scream like reliable. Do you think that news organizations have maybe bucked their role a little bit in this like i've seen a lot of news organizations going well in this unverified video that was shared by this twitter user we can see x y and z and is is that responsible journalism when it comes to like war zone reporting 
Yeah, it's a really it's really challenging um, because you know the, if it's information that seems good, uh, I can see from the news sources' perspective they really want to get it out. Um, but if it's unverified or they can't say 100% for certain that this is true, then by talk, by labeling it in that way, I think it's a way to protect themselves. But I I, I agree there is there is an issue there in, in still sen- sending that content out into a you know a, to an audience that would be taking this seriously. And of course there are you know many examples that you can pull from, you know, on the, you know, on the internet of like things that look good, you know, and of course with AI now, there's an even, you know, more of a sharpening of things making, looking really good or, or they're having misinformation seem like it's, it's true. Um, that the more that we're seeing content like that, the more I, I think newsrooms really need to be considering, you know, the reliability of the information. Can we back this up with a second source? And if that's not the case, then I would recommend maybe not showing it at all, um, or or discussing it as hearsay, as just so that people know what is being discussed or what is being kind of floating around out there, and then you know later confirm whether or not it's true. But it is it is certainly a challenge because, like users, newsrooms have to also sort through a lot of this stuff to determine whether or not it's credible, um, and you know, and to be able to try to find something to corroborate it is, is certainly a challenge. Um, you know, and, and in many ways they they have the same kind of perspective as a user with a little more resources, of course, but still the same problem. Juliana Kirshner is with us from the University of Southern California. We're talking about disinformation on social media, particularly around wars. And in an interview you did with Forbes, you talked about the example of Snake Island in the war in Ukraine. For our listeners who might not remember, what happened there? Um, that with Snake Island, it was, you know, a situation where misinformation was at the center. Um, that essentially what, what occurred was, um, you know, a, a situation in which, um, you know, content was just not true. <laughs> Essentially, what really happened there was a case of, of, you know, information going out about, you know, like what, what was going on on Snake Island. And, you know, folks were just completely misled. Um, and information was going out that just simply wasn't true. Um, but in many ways also compromised, um, a Ukrainian operation. And so much of what we, ex- what we see in terms of wartime, um, information sharing can often lead to, you know, the primacy effect taking, you know, taking hold. Essentially what people hear first seems to kind of maintain its presence in their 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 mind and that any information that comes out after that can be contradictory to the point where, um, you know, people might even double down on what their initial beliefs were. That's really interesting. Juliana Kirshner is with us on this Monday morning. Before I let you go, uh, how do platforms like Twitter and TikTok and Facebook and also governments, how do they fight disinformation online without stepping on social or without stepping on freedom of speech and freedom of expression? That's a, that's an excellent point. Um, so I mean, what we're seeing right now, um, with this latest, um, you know, wartime coverage of Israel, um, I know Hamas and Palestine is the heterogeneity of existing echo chambers on the conflict. So for example, um, a user can share nearly everything else in common with others in the same echo chamber or space, you know, where they all kind of share some of the same content, except on this one very important point, um, that social media platforms are already beginning to respond. Um, you know, so 
someone with conflicting views, uh, you know, to the user that's viewing it can be reshuffled to the bottom of the feed. So it's not kind of the central part of, of the content. And essentially, algorithms are constantly being taught, you know, based on user activity, you know, what to shuffle forward and what to shuffle down so that, you know, the user is receiving what they think that they want to receive. However, what has really been apparent, especially in times like this, is a case in which, you know, users are saying, I, I want to see as much out there as possible. I follow certain people with dissenting opinions to mine so that I can understand a different perspective, but yet I don't see their content. So uh, platforms, you know, social media platforms really should be considering um, also uplifting some of that content. Don't shuffle it completely down and then design the algorithm so people can see some, you know, marketplace of ideas where currently they're not seeing a great variety um, as it currently stands. That's a really good point. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, Juliana Kirshner is a lecturer for the Annenberg School of Communication and Journalism at the University of South Calif- Southern California. Excuse me, that's a mouthful. But I hope we can have you back again soon. I'd love to be back. Thank you so much for having me. Anytime. It has been, just been so difficult to try and navigate what's true and what's not true on social media as things are flying at you at a million miles an hour. It is a constant challenge, but hey, I found a solution. Just put down social media for a little while. Always helps me feel better. We've got a lot more still ahead this hour. We're going to catch up with Tom Korski coming up at 1130 from Blacklock's Reporter. How bad is this carbon tax fight hurting Justin Trudeau and the Liberals? We'll find out a little bit later on when Tom Korski joins us. Lots more still ahead here on 650 CKOM and 980 CJME. Coming in on Saskatchewan's zebra case. Yep, it's going to court tomorrow in Indian Head. A guy is charged with illegally keeping zebras on his property without having the proper zoo license. Sally in Lestock texts in says, I think the man who had the zebras should have to pay some money for sheltering and feeding them. Yeah, that's probably in the cards because the province had to kick in more than $100,000 to build a special heated enclosure for these zebras. Pete in Craven is wondering what's the point. He says, as for the zebra guy, I guess he thought his neighbors would never notice. Maybe he wanted to ride one in a parade. What would your mindset even be to collect zebras? That's Pete in Craven. You know, it makes me think of an absolutely tragic case in the United States. Did you ever hear about the Zanesville, Ohio animal release? Boy, have I got a story for you. On October the 18th, 2011, the sheriffs were called to the rural home of Terry Thompson. And the sheriffs were called by his neighbor, uh, a rancher. And his neighbor said, "Uh, guys, I think there's a lion chasing my horses around in their pen. Could you please come out and have a look? Terry Thompson was a collector of wild animals, exotic wild animals. He had lots of them. And on October the 18th, 2011, Thompson, whose wife had left him and was going broke, opened every single one of the cages and then committed suicide. 
So the sheriffs learned about this as they went up to his home to try and get him to maybe sort out his lion problem. And the sheriffs realized they had a much, much, much bigger problem. All of Thompson's wild animals were out. They were all loose. And it was getting dark. And it was starting to rain. And when I say Terry Thompson had wild animals, like among his wild animals were 18 Bengal tigers. So the sheriffs, this is 2011 and a rural sheriff's department, so they're all military vets. And the sheriff had some friends who were like serious military guys, like Delta level guys. And he started making calls and they got some trucks and some spotlights and some high powered rifles and they went out hunting in the rain. And that night, they killed 18 Bengal tigers, six black bears, two grizzly bears, two wolves, a macaque monkey, a baboon, three mountain lions, and 17 African lions. Can you imagine? They touched on this case very, very briefly in Tiger King. But Tiger King was really sort of humorous, and when someone got attacked by one of those tigers, it was usually one of the owners, and the crowd would just cheer. But, geez, some of these private zoos especially in the States, they get absolutely right out of hand. Well, I mean, we all saw Tiger King and just how crazy that guy was. And he was still allowed to have tigers and lions and bears. Oh, my. Even with the proper licenses, some of these exotic animal places are really dangerous and their tragedies waiting to happen. In this case, it's just zebras. Zebras do have the potential to be dangerous, but like if you see zebras running around in a field, you're probably okay. You don't worry about your kids walking around at night because there might be zebras out. It's just not how it works. But yeah, a lot of these exotic animal sanctuaries and keepers and the private zoos are really just tragedies waiting to happen, or in many cases, tragedies that have already happened and are waiting to be discovered. Coming up next, Tom Korski joins us from Blacklock's Reporter as Ottawa gets ready to vote on extending that carbon tax home heating exemption. Are Trudeau and the Liberals going to put their foot down on this, or are they going to see the writing on the wall? Tom Korski's here next, 650 CKOM and 980 CJME.